Hi, and welcome to the American Midwife Series podcast with me, your host, Angelica Malone. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Amber Wilson, a certified nurse midwife in Virginia with her doctorate of nursing practice. Amber knew she wanted to become a midwife after receiving prenatal care from a midwife during her first pregnancy. Amber's journey to midwifery includes working as a pediatric nurse and a labor and delivery nurse for a number of years while serving in the Navy. After midwifery school, she joined a home birth practice in Idaho and currently lives in Virginia while she serves military families and is teaching nursing classes at Old Dominion University. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get into it. Hi, Amber. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to chat with you. Me too. Okay, so we're going to talk about how you came to midwifery, and then we're going to talk about a really interesting article that you wrote that I think is really pertinent to midwifery. And we're going to wait and talk about that in a little bit. But first, tell me, uh, when did your desire to become a midwife begin? So honestly, I was pregnant with my first daughter. She is now 19. So at the time, I was oh, 20. Um, I was new to the military, and the standard of care in the military was low-risk pregnancy. You're taken care of by a midwife. And so I just loved the way she took care of me um, that, you know, she took. To, I really didn't know anything different. I didn't know about um, a doctor or an OBGYN or anything like that. And I just was really passionate about pregnancy and parenting. And um, I worked with, you know, several other people who were pregnant at a young age. And I just found myself sharing everything that I'd learned and like automatically giving advice. Like I was an expert at 20. I really wasn't, but (laughs) just, I just had the the passion to share it and people listened. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like I knew what I was saying. I I probably did just as much as I possibly could at that time. Um, And then I just had, I had a really good, I mean, I had to be induced. That's a whole nother story, but um, I had good care. Um, my midwife stayed with me and she pushed with me the whole time. It was about an hour and a half, first baby. It's not terrible, but um, I just loved it. I loved, and I was like, this is what I have to do. Something in, you know, educating other women, just basically what everything midwives do. And yes. I just knew it. I, I had the bug and that's what I was going to do. But um, I don't think I really knew at the time quite how or when I was going to get there, but that's definitely what sparked me. Okay. Yeah. What service were you in and where were you stationed at the time? Um, I was in the Navy and I was stationed in Virginia beach at that time. And actually I still know, and I'm friends with the midwife that um, inspired my journey today. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. So my, my husband and I, so I am um, out of the Coast Guard. I was in the Coast Guard for six years and my husband's been in for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. But in the Coast Guard, they don't give us access to nurse midwives or um, midwives unless you're stationed at a base that also has a Navy base. Yeah. And I guess that, that Navy base, their hospital also has to staff nurse midwives. Yeah. Um, so it's very cool that that's the standard of care mm-hmm. for um, most Navy service members and their family. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty much, it should be all services. Um, there's midwives pretty it much should. everywhere. Not a hundred percent, but some of the overseas commands don't have midwives, but, um, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. 
That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you had your first baby with a midwife and she really influenced your, your decision to go that way. And then what did you do after that? And so what was, what was your life like at the time? And then how did you eventually start deciding on the path to become a midwife and choosing the path that you did? So, um, I was a single mom cause you know, long story, another episode, but <laughs> I knew, I remember working with this, this was another one of my steps in all my inspiration. I was working with, um, had a heavy male role or male dominated, um, job at the time. And there was a man getting out. He's retiring after 20 years. And he was a E6, which if you, you know, you know about military rank, not everybody does, but, yes. um, not, I mean, that's a good rank to achieve, but many people at 20 years are a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he said to me, don't waste your time in the military and not get a degree. They pay for your college, use it for what you can use it for all you can. And I was like, okay. And I went to the uh, college office that we had on base and enrolled like that month. And I started the following when the next semester um, kicked in, I started and I just got a general associate's degree at first. And then I was like, okay, now I need to move on and choose the next step. What do I do? Do I proceed and just get a general, I think it was uh, like liberal arts. Do I just do that? Or do I go ahead and start taking these prereqs for nursing? Um, because I know where I want to go eventually. Uh, so ultimately I of course decided to start on my prereqs with nursing. I had, um, you know, you have with as military, you have your friends that are like family and they would watch my daughter for me when I took classes in the evenings and I would take my anatomy and physiology and my chemistry and go to lab. Um, if it was not for them who also I'm still friends with, they just really paved the way for me to be where I am today. And, um, actually she is about to graduate with her midwifery degree as well. But, and I would watch so their cool. son. Yeah. I would watch their son as, because, um, her husband would go out to see, and so she was kind of alone sometimes too. And so we would kid swap. <laughs> um, and so really, if it wasn't for them paving the way for prereqs, you know, I'm still forever thankful for them for that young time in our lives. Yeah. That is so, so awesome that you had such a strong support system. And it's true in the military, the people you serve with do become your family. And it's funny because, uh, a lot of times the people that you meet in the military are very different than you or come from very different backgrounds than you or places of the United States or even around the world, but they become just as close to you, if not closer than your family. You spend so much time with them. You sometimes have to spend overnight times during, you know, different assignments together. So yeah, I love that they were a core part of allowing you to complete that part of your, your training. I have a question. Yeah. Did you use tuition assistance? Is I that did. what you used? Yes. Okay. And I don't yeah. know, do they have tuition assistance still? They do have it. So I don't know exactly what it covers now, but at the time I believe it covered, oh gosh, it was either hundred percent or 75%. And then I was able to use GI Bill benefits to cover the rest of the tuition. But at the time it was community college as well. So it wasn't too much financially. I mean, when you're not making a lot, it's not really something I could have paid for out of pocket. But, um, you know, military started my education back then. Perfect. Yeah. So you got your degree in nursing. So I did actually did my prereqs. And then I applied for a um, commissioning program because I was enlisted. So I came in traditionally, you know, just a high school education. I went through boot camp. Um, I applied for 
it, at the time it still exists, but it's called medical enlisted commissioning program. So, um, they, I got a paycheck while I went to school. Mm-hmm. I was kind of E5 paycheck, but I had to pay for college. So there's a couple other programs in the military where they, they will pay for your college and you'll get a paycheck. Um, this was a little bit different, but again, I, I used my GI Bill at the time, so I was okay. Um, so I got accepted for that, um, the first time I applied, which was awesome. And then I started school in the fall. And so that I just went to school for three years while still being active duty. Uh, mm-hmm. I still had to do like, you know, general military training things and run my physical tests every six months. But, um, in general, I was just like a normal civilian, not in the military. <laughs> so it's kind of fun, a fun little break for three years. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I graduated from nursing school, I had my bachelor's of nursing um, from Old Dominion, and I you get commissioned right after that. So, okay, that's what I did. So that means you become an officer. Yes, correct. So tell me about applying to that program. What were some of the requirements? Did you have to be a certain rank beforehand? Had you did you have to add more years to your time of service? Did you have to be in for a certain length of time already? Um, so I don't think you had to be in a certain amount of time at the time. Again, it, this was many years ago, but you definitely mm-hmm. had to have all your prereqs. So I had to have, I think, 30 credits of prereqs. I had to have my anatomy and physiology, my chemistry. I had to have all that before I applied. Um, you had to have strong recommendations. So I, when I use the term like a package, I had a big, huge packet of papers that was recommendation from people I worked with, um, all my transcripts. I had to do a little time at, um, I did it at just the medical clinic where I did a week of like just observation and kind of seeing what it was like to work in medicine. Um, I sat through the term as a board. So I had three um, commissioned officers, one that was medical and two that worked at my command. And they asked me just several general questions about military life and, um, my thoughts and perspectives on things. And they had to give me recommendations as well. Um, I probably had letters of recommendations as well as something that I wrote. And then you submit that big package to the, um, board that, that accepts people for it. So it was a lengthy process and it took a lot of time and commitment and things like that to do, which I'm sure it still is today, but maybe it's all done electronically at the time. It was just paper. Okay. And that sounds like, even though it was such a, a lot of work, you're now a der- doctor of nursing practice. Yeah. It probably was worth it oh, to you. <laughs> for sure. I mean, for sure. It's like winning the lottery, like you get to, you get, <clears throat> excuse me, you get paid to go to school. And you still keep your rank and you continue to accrue years in the service. I mean, it, it is a no-brainer. If, you, if anybody has the opportunity to do a commissioning program, you for sure should. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. Thank I you. Mean, obviously, you've been doing this path for a while. Yeah. But just listening to your story, I'm like, I know how tough it is to be in the military and then also be considering, like, these other options. It's not always very clear-cut what your other options are. Sometimes it can just feel like I just have to continue, you know, advancing in my current um, job and rank and, you know, head towards retirement. It's hard to sometimes know that there are other options out there and just be able to dream. So I think that man you met who was retiring, just saying to you, Hey, use the military for all it can give you. What's really good advice. Exactly. And what's funny, you just reminded me is, um, I don't even remember how, but no one at my command knew about this program. No one suggested I didn't work in the medical field. Didn't even know it existed. So I basically had to like walk them through. I was at a small command, again, male dominated, 
walk them through like what I needed done and how to do it. And the year after me, another fellow applied through the same program because then they knew about it and he was like, Oh, okay, I'm going to do that too. So that was kind of neat that I, that I feel like I played a little role in someone else's life and career path too. Yeah. You were a trailblazer. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that. But <laughs> I found But I know how hard. Yes. But it's very hard to find information like that. And like you said, being at a small command, if they don't know about it, that can sometimes seem like a very large hurdle. Yeah. Yep. It was. <clears throat> okay. So you, you got your degree in nursing. Did you begin to work as a nurse? How did you get your first assignment? So they stick you wherever, you know, based on the needs of the military. I was, um, uh, actually just stationed where I was at the time. I mentioned I was in Virginia beach. So I just went to the Naval hospital that was local. So I didn't have to move or anything like that. Uh, it was a big hospital, so that was really good being a brand-new nurse because we had um, got exposure to every different unit. Um, we did a rotation throughout the hospital. And then you put your top three where you want to go specialties, and hopefully you get one of them. I actually did get my top one at the time. I had chose um, peds, and so – that's where I started out was in Peds. Um, it was a training hospital as well. So there was residents. And um, so it was really good for a lot of new medical people to be at a place like that. You saw a lot of things, a lot, you know, a big volume. Um, so I'm really thankful that I got to be at that facility in my first rotation. It sounds like a really perfect storm. Everything just came together and you happened to be in a really great place. Did you have family support in the area? Is that... Was that a part of um, the dynamic at the time? How did you support your family or like how, how did you have like childcare support while you were doing this? So at that time I had uh, met and married my husband now and we actually had um, our first baby together, which is, was my second baby. So he was active duty as well. So that had lots of other challenges, but um, you know, because of him, he was the main support of everything I was doing. And so, you know, those rotating shifts, nights, days, 12 hours, things like that. So we made it work. It was tough, but we did it. You're very inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know lots of people are going to listen to this episode and think if she can do it, I can well, do it. Well, they should. Cause I don't think I'm anything phenomenal. I just, you just do what you have to do, but I, if, if it helps inspire somebody, then good. Mm-hmm. And it, it helps, like you, like you were just sharing your experience with the, the guy who applied after you. It's, it's helpful to see someone else do it and accomplish their goal. It lets you know that it's possible. Yeah. Okay, so you started working at the Navy Hospital. You're getting all of this experience. Mm -hmm. When did you begin to think about graduate school and actually applying to midwifery? Uh, okay, so that I'll try to make that long story brief. So I worked in PEDS the first couple of years. So Long story short, I actually didn't request labor and delivery when I first went to the hospital because um, I know it sounds silly, but I had heard they had to be at the on the unit at, at 630 in the morning. And at the time, with my husband being day, military as well, our daycare didn't open till six. I was like, I don't think I can make it. Um, and I'm really worried about that. Like, I don't want to show up and be this, you know, not good, this person that's late all the time because of of childcare issues. So, um, that's why I went to PEDS initially. 
long story short, I'm so thankful for my time on peds. I think it's really um, laid the foundation for my skills today as a midwife. Um, so after a couple years on peds, I um, was able to, for various reasons, um, my husband left the military and things like that. I was able to transition to labor and delivery. Turns out you didn't have to be there at 630, but that's okay. And <laughs> I worked at the Naval Hospital for, um, oh gosh, I can't remember. Maybe a year. I can't remember exactly. And then I transitioned. I had to move. It was time for me to um, move because the military said. And I went to a small command in Southern California. Very, very, very small. Very rural. No. Um, we had very limited resources. Your closest uh, high acuity NICU was an hour and a half life flight away um, we, so we didn't have, we just had a general pediatrician in house. Um, the doctors and midwives didn't stay in house unless they needed to, like somebody was in labor, things like that. So I became even stronger of a, of a nurse there because um, we had to be so independent and autonomous. And we learned how to stabilize babies and we did a lot of labor support. Um, there's a lot of people there that chose, um, non-epidural labor and birth as well. Just, I don't know, a little more smaller command, the region, um, a little more granola population, I guess. I'm not sure, but I, Mm -hmm. um, grew a lot in those skills. And so there was a lot of times where I questioned, like, is this really what I want to do? Because I know it can be a hard life and I have to do all this school and I have to do all these nights and it's a demanding job and I'm not sure if I want to do it. And so I, literally applied to seven graduate programs with different, <laughs> different, one was public health. One was just about, I don't even remember what they all were. And I know it's crazy. <laughs> Cause I was like, I don't know what I want to be with I grow up. I know that's what I thought I wanted to be, but I had so many doubts. Um, and at this point I had had, um, I had how many children? Four at the time, four. And I was like, okay, okay. I'm going to do this. But anyway, I cared for this woman that came in. She had, she was a breast cancer survivor. She was 26 years old and she had one breast and she was like the most strongest, powerful. She was amazing. And she got through her labor. Mm-hmm. She, I remember the the doctor at the time kind of doing like some fear mongering with her because she didn't want continuous monitoring and things like that. And I just kind of um, helped her and coached her and told her like, you know, you, you have the power to decide what you want. Basically what we would say, like fully informed consent at this time, at this point, patient's choice. Um, she rocked it. Awesome birth. And she was like, I couldn't have done this without you. And I was like, well, as I always still say today, yes, you could have, it it was all you. I was just here to support you, but I was like, okay, this is what I got to do. That was my re-spark in, Mm -hmm. in my journey and so I applied for graduate school yeah wow what a powerful experience it was thinking about that and how you struggled for a little bit deciding which path you wanted to take I think that's actually really important um choosing something not having considered all the options might seem like a good idea in the beginning, but I think that it can also lead you down the path of something you think you want to do, but really not being sure of it and getting to the end and realizing this is not at all what I wanted to do. And so I think you having that, that period of time where you got to actually pursue all the options you applied, where you could see, you know, imagine yourself going down these different paths, but then having that dynamic experience with her, with that one client, um, I think, was powerful enough to say like, this is what I actually want to do. And, 
allowed you to dis- dismiss the other options that were totally available to you. Um, so I think it was, it seemed like actually a really good thing. That, that is happened. such a great point. I've never thought about, I've always felt so silly because I'm like, I applied for seven graduate schools, but thank you. Yeah, no, I, I think that many times people um, don't allow themselves to dream about the other option thinking it's like an injustice to the one thing that they think is really more noble. But if you just go down that path without actually having considered the other options, do you really know what you're yeah. choosing or are you just choosing what you think yeah. is good? And I had, I mentioned I had applied to public health. That was a huge uh, top contender on my plate. Um, and I ultimately was like, you know what? Midwifery really is public health, but I still have the option of, you know, being a midwife for public health. You, mm-hmm. that is an awesome job as well, but your, your role is public health. You know, midwifery, mm-hmm. it really is public health. You're caring for the family. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you're helping change the dynamic of that. And you are, depending on where you are, you know, working with underserved and um, it just is, that is public health. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a very high touch yes. public health. Yep. So you, you chose midwifery school and how did that transition go from California to going to graduate um, school? So originally I had applied and actually started at Frontier University. I did one, um, I don't know what they call them, but they're like 11 week sessions. I did one. I was transitioning. Um, I had decided to leave active duty and go reserves, but, um, also, what came with that is that the reserves was able to um, help me with schooling as well. So they helped pay for that, and I got a stipend for that um, as well. Some people now would call that – it's similar to an HPSP scholarship, which I cannot okay. remember right now what that stands for. Healthcare Professional Scholarship Program, maybe? Yes. Um, so okay. you get a stipend each month, and then they help pay for schooling as well. It's not as good as active duty um, paycheck, but, you know, it was enough. It was helpful. And I had to not be at Frontier. I had to change schools because the Navy um, does not, and this may not be true now, but it might be. They did not allow Frontier because they felt like it was a full online program. All you Frontier people know that that's not true, but that's how the Navy feels. Um, And so I had to, I was able to go to Old Dominion, which is where I did my undergrad because they have, um, it's what you'd call like a, I'm not sure how you would call it, like a hybrid program. So you do your first Mm -hmm. year at your home university. There's about eight universities on the East coast that do it. And then there's your second year is at Shenandoah university. And that's where you get the midwifery portion of your degree. So that's what I did. So I have a couple questions. The just for those who are not familiar with the military, reservists is kind of how I like to describe part-time yes. military. So instead of being there every single day, you know, having to stand duty and everything, you go in typically about right. once a month and you stay for a weekend or something like that and do drills or whatever exactly. they have you do based mm-hmm. on your job. The second thing I was going to ask you is that scholarship were you able to use that along with your GI bill? How are you paying school for school primarily? Cause it sounds like you're using that, that scholarship to pay for mm-hmm. living expenses. Is I was. That right? So they had um, the program that I did again, they paid a stipend, which is a living expenses. And then they paid student loan repayment when I graduated. So I used student loans at the time. I still had GI bill left. I didn't, I didn't use it for that. Um, I actually used that for my doctorate. And then I, use that money that they paid back later to pay towards my student loans. 
So it was paid for partially, but backwards. Is that clear? Okay. 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 Yeah, that makes sense. I think that makes sense. Okay. So your final stop was Shenandoah. Is that correct? Okay. So pick us up from where you, from graduate school, what that was like, what the programming was like, because you're saying for, so so many people, that was the third question I was going to ask you. Can you just briefly describe Frontier and the, the, like the didactic portion? Because I think that that is what um, makes it unique to other programs, though what you're pointing out is it's not all online, but it could seem like that to someone from the outside, I guess. So, and you know, as you all, you know, I have a podcast as well. Many frontier people are on Mm -hmm. there and they tell the story much better than I do because they went through the whole program, but you, you visit the campus once before you start your classes, you visit again before you start clinical. And that can be, gosh, maybe a year, a year or some change later. I don't remember exactly. Um, So I visited the campus just the one time. And then I did the, you know, the first 11 week session of, I think I had two classes at the time. They, they transferred to ODU, thankfully. Um, and then it's, they are, I felt like very, um, stringent. Like it's, it's a lot of work. If you are going to frontier plan your time accordingly, (laughs) because it's a lot of work. I Mm -hmm. know people that still go to frontier. It is very demanding. Not to say that my graduate program wasn't, but um, I, I just feel like Frontier is like, we're going to put this on you because it's all distant. Um, so it's a lot of work. Okay. And they do a – oh, go ahead. Would you say – sorry, go ahead. Please explain. I was going to ask this for details uh, about it's that. Just, you know, like every week they had tests, big, big tests. So you had to do lots of studying, lots of reading. And I, I took my A&P class, so that could be why it felt very demanding as well because that class just itself is demanding. Um, and so I didn't have to take that at ODU. So I, it was hard for me to compare what the difference was. I'm sure it was still as demanding because the information is just demanding. Um, anytime you're in graduate school, anywhere is going to be demanding. I mean, (laughs) yes. Yeah. And I worked PRN when I was in graduate school. So I was super thankful for that, but I know there's plenty of people that work full time and go to school full time and, you know, I commend them because that's tough. That's a lot. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about the difference between Frontier and then Old Dominion okay. and Shenandoah. So at, when I was at Old Dominion, which was the first year, I had classes every week. And um, depending on the semester, like one semester we had um, to go to the lab every week and do physicals, uh, physical exam on each other. So you had something every week that required you to be at campus. And then Frontier does all of their clinical portion at the end of all their classroom. So you do all your learning and then you spend your last, whatever, three, four or five months doing just doing clinical or at Old Dominion in Mm -hmm. Shenandoah, you did clinical integrated. So I'll tell you just briefly my story. The first semester was, um, the in lab where we practiced physical on each other. And then we did physical exam at the end on a simulated patient and we had classroom. The second semester I had classroom time, but I also had, um, clinical at mine was at a public health, um, like the health department. So it was a, um, you know, birth control, pregnant, mostly just women's health type like that. And then, Mm -hmm. um, the fall was again, like, Gyne, women's health, 
things like that. And that was when I was at Shenandoah. So now I'm at Shenandoah. I'm taking classes at Shenandoah. I did have to visit the campus at the beginning of the semester, but the rest of the semester was online. Um, Cause Shenandoah for me is three hours away, but for some people it could be like four five, six where these universities are. Um, so we did okay. our, our gyne clinical at that time with classroom. And then the spring was still more classroom, but we started integrating L and D and then the summer was a little back off on classroom and much more. That was your like final um, where you did it all. You did clinic, you did labor and delivery, you did everything. So, and that was like your big final test okay. and you're prepping for boards and things like that. So we had a little bit less, you know, blackboard and, and things like that. So. Okay. okay. Uh, I have two questions. Old Dominion University and Shenandoah, are they physically close to one another about or are they far apart? Three and a half, four hours apart. Yeah. Which is oh, generally, okay, well, yeah. So all that's the a big deal. Um, I, I wish I could remember right now, but anybody can look it up. I think there's maybe George Washington University. There's one in West Virginia. There's six or eight maybe. Um, and they're all probably, I think you could drive from all of them, but some are maybe five, okay. six hours. Okay. Next question. How did you find a preceptor? How do you get paired? What was your rotation like in L&D when you started doing uh, L&D and clinicals? How, how was that arranged? So this, um, Shenandoah actually did it for you, but my labor and delivery rotation, they, I found for myself, which was fine. You don't have to do that. I just had a specific place that I wanted to go. Um, and so I, and they required a, a CV and things like that. Um, so I actually did that a year out. Um, so I set that up for myself. And then the final, final, like big final rotation before you're, you're finished with schooling, I um, didn't have a clinical site. They were supposed to get one for me. It, they did have one, but it was like not working out. And I ended up reaching out to the military community and asking for help and was able to do my final rotation at um, actually the hospital that I work at now. So technically the answer is they'll find your site for you. Okay. But there's some yes. dynamics at play there. Okay. Um, so I had a question about the clinical site, the clinical portion they found for you. The next one, you, the L&D, you found yourself. How did you go about finding it yourself? What were some of the things you were thinking about as you considered your L&D uh, rotation? And did the hospital have like a portal or something where it's like, if you are a pre-med or, a, excuse me, a medical student or a PA student or a CNM student and you want to come here for a rotation, like, do they have a process or do you just reach out to someone you know who works so, on the floor? Um, I wanted that specific site. So it's actually recently closed, but it had a birth center in the hospital. And that's the only one like that in this area. Okay. Um, again, that's now closed, but so I knew I wanted to go there for that reason. And I cannot remember how I reached out. I know that there wasn't like a portal, like, Oh, okay. If student click here. So I imagine I must've called and asked for a point of contact or something. I don't even remember how I did it. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. I'm just thinking that's a, that's a, I feel like, so my, I'm in graduate school for midwifery as well. And I have a clinical site that I'm at now and I found that myself, but I pretty much just reached out to the midwife because it's small, it's a small practice, but I'm wondering if you were trying to work within a hospital system, how do you, yeah. you know, and make I do think at the time as well, our ACNM was a little more active. Um, 
So that may have had something to do with that. Okay. I may have gotten one of the midwives' names through somebody else because I did know that you had to have, for that specific site, um, L&D experience. Um, and so I had heard that already through word okay. of mouth. Okay. Good to know. So you graduate mm-hmm. from midwifery school. How do you, what are you considering for your first job? How did you find your first job? And then tell us what that so first job was like. I actually, my first job was at a home birth slash birth center. Um, so mind you at the time I had gone to school and I was living in Virginia. My original home state is Idaho, which is where um, the majority of my family is in Idaho. So I'd always wanted to move back there. That was actually the part of the reason that I left active duty was was to move back there, but I ended up coming here for school. So I thought, okay, well, you know, it's time. We should probably just go ahead and, and try. Let me see what's out there for jobs. So I did find a job at a, a very longstanding, super reputable birth center. The um, And it all happened like super fast, like they said I had the job. I, we packed up our stuff. Oh, also, by the way, I found out I was pregnant. It was like just a crazy time in my life. Um, my husband actually stayed behind to like get our house finished so that we could rent it. It was insane. Um, and so I ended up working there for a little while. I loved the team that I was with. Um, they were wonderful, wonderful people. Um, it was a team of all, all women at the time. Um, they, the clients were great. I loved how they were so, um, you know, active and intuitive about their own bodies. I, I loved being a part of home birth and birth centers and just kind of learning to relax a little bit. Cause I definitely was more fearful of it, even in midwifery school, like, Oh, I don't know about that. Um, but I mm-hmm. learned that some things that we freak out about in the hospital are okay and we can relax. And that's a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to get into that now, but, um, <laughs> it, and this is just the case in general with home birth. So I'm definitely not, not insulting those that choose this, but the salary was not great. Um, I could actually have made more mm-hmm. as a registered nurse. Um, and that was really hard mm-hmm. when you are on call so much, and Absolutely. I, at the time, was pregnant with my fifth baby, and I was like, I, I don't know how I'm going to sustain. Not, I mean, we live pretty simply, but just thinking about the future, like, how am I going to do this? And then at some point, they're going to have more bigger needs, and you know, uh, we need a new car, and that's not even really in the cars right now with this income. And so, and then just the dynamics of like having a newborn. I know people do it, and you know, it was just for me really anxiety provoking, and I really think it stems from. Um, I was on call a lot in the military and for some reason it just really, it doesn't settle with me just having to be on call Mm -hmm. and locked to my phone. People do it and that's great. And I love them for Mm -hmm. it. It just is emotionally really hard for me to do. And so even though some weeks Mm -hmm. I would only work like 20 hours, it was just being tethered to my phone. It was so emotionally draining. Um, and I was like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And, um, I love my family and, Idaho is a beautiful place, but it is cold. And in the winter, it can be very gray. Again, not good for my mental health. I need sunshine. I need warm weather. Um, I couldn't do it. I just, it was just too many things stacked up and I just was not in a good place. And 
So I yeah. said, we got to go. My house was still empty, actually, in Virginia. Um, the, the nice part is I met some wonderful people. They're still my friends today. I had a really great experience. I learned so much about, about home birth and birth center. And I'm so thankful for my time there. And I'm thankful for the, the um, birth center owner who took me in and, and just, they treated me so well. I still communicate with them often and, and I'm so thankful for that. And I actually had my baby at home under their care as well. And so that was really wonderful. Um, and so we left about when he was about a month old and I came back to Virginia and my job at the time, there was no midwife jobs, but I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. I was just teaching undergraduate nursing clinical and online teaching as well until I found my job I have now about um, I started working about nine months after we'd moved back so okay uh, yeah long story thank you for sharing that (laughs) that sounds like you're on such a road of discovery again one I think that many uh, new midwives go on even CPMs uh, you think you love something and it's one thing to do it as a student or do it for a year or two, but it's much different to yeah. see that as your foreseeable future when you're growing a family. And like you said, you need to buy a new car. You need to just do your normal life things. And it is, it is a big deal to, like you said, you may only work 20 hours one week, but to have just in the back of your mind, this constant knowing that I must have yeah. my phone or my pager um, loud enough to hear it. And I can't sleep too deeply. Exactly. That is that is intense. And I think that it's, it, it's not something that just uh, nurse midwives who maybe have trained primarily in the hospital experience. I think it's something that definitely yeah. CPM students feel as well, or CPM yep. feel as well. And maybe doulas and anybody who is on so, call for birth work. Exactly. Yes. Um, absolutely. So they, I have a couple okay. of questions to ask about your journey. So did you find it so it sounds like you were looking for a community midwifery practice. So working like out of the hospital no, when you graduated, I was really is just that right? So focused on getting back to Idaho at the time that I really took anything okay. and I didn't have any hospital based um, jobs at the time. So probably that was an error on okay. my part is that I should have done more research and, and more thought about it. But again, as we do in life, I did learn and took so much out of the experience that I'm thankful for it ultimately overall. Totally. Next question I wanted to ask, what do you think would have been a reasonable salary at the the job you were at considering, you know, how you Mm -hmm. had resettled your family there, you were on call for this. I'm assuming there were other midwives there. I know of one birth center in Idaho, so we don't, I don't know if you want to name it, but um, Mm -hmm. the one I know of has multiple midwives. So I don't know if you were on call with multiple midwives, uh, what do you think with all the dynamics at play, what do you think would have been a reasonable salary? And I know mm-hmm. you're really, I love your podcast and you just asked the straight yeah. up question, <laughs> how much did you get paid to someone? Um, and I don't, I won't do that to you unless you feel comfortable, but if you could share what you think would have been an actual so reasonable salary really, there. Uh, it's difficult to say because um, with anybody who's out of the hospital, you have a lot of overhead. That's just yours. Like I know our, our owner who's been doing it for 20 something years often didn't pay herself, which is hard because she would also take call. And so we had a practice of four, but sometimes we were down to just three or two. One midwife was pregnant, had to be out. And, um, so when we were down to like three and two, it was really, really, really hard. Um, cause essentially you're not on off call when you're two midwives because you are, 
primary call or your backup mm-hmm. call. And so that the two midwives didn't happen too often, but even three, it was like, I don't even like, I can't, you can't really plan anything, but so it's hard to say like, Oh, they should be paid this or that. Um, because again, you can only take on so many clients. If you take on more to make more money, then everybody's taking on more of a load. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard. And I don't know what the overall overhead because I'm not a business person is, um, from my understanding nationwide and somebody out there could tell me I'm totally wrong, but it's in general, somewhere in the range of 60 to 75,000 a year for a home birth midwife. So you might think that's great, but many nurses can make that. And, and that's a great salary, but once you've sunk all this money into your degree, and then also you have a higher level of responsibility as a nurse, as a nurse practitioner or nurse midwife, um, you've left the realm of registered nurse. You, I believe should be compensated more. And then sometimes you have to pay for liability insurance. I did not. The birth center paid for mine as you know, so that was good. But, um, so it's hard. Like, I can't say, Oh, this should have been the salary, but, I can only say that that salary mm-hmm. didn't work for me at that time in my life for the needs that I had, but for someone else. And I actually can think of a Absolutely. specific gr- person I interviewed on my podcast who made around that range. And she said, it's great. It's perfect for me. I love my life. Um, some weeks I work 20 hours. I can't imagine a different life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I remember totally that person on your podcast. Awesome. It just didn't work for me. That's all. <laughs> and it, you know, no, I, I think that's such a really (laughs) Amber do not apologize like for having these perspectives because you make a really important point. If you spend, I mean, I'm just going to speak for myself and my program, a hundred grand on your education alone, not all the other things, you know, that you sacrifice along the way. It is very difficult to think now I'm going to not be able to buy a car or have my children or buy a home because I'm working and I'm getting paid an unreasonable salary and that's not to say that you don't love what you're doing but it's very hard to grapple with and it's very hard to just suck it yeah. up and say this is what I'll get paid you know so I think it's reasonable and I think it's something that people should be able to consider before they choose a path or even once they've chosen it and maybe consider the other yeah, options it's really available hard because I wish we had more out of hospital options but you know there's other people in my same boat too that just can't financially do it so mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you came back to Virginia yes. and you got the job that you have now yeah. and you also teach. So are you, are you talking about that position or are I you do. saying you have that? So in when I first role? came back to Virginia, I taught, um, undergraduate nursing students in clinical sites as well as online teaching. When I started my, this job that I'm at now, okay. I no longer can teach, um, clinical rotation. So I only teach online and, um, I'm an adjunct, so I'm not like a primary professor, but it's a good way to keep my foot in the door. It's a good way to, uh, be active in education. And, and so I, I do like it. It's not a heavy role, but it's enough that, you know, I enjoy it and I can still do what I'm doing and not feel too burdened. Okay. That's great. So tell me about your, your clinical role right now, like what you're doing as a midwife, what that position is um, like. This is probably most hospital midwives, um, a combination of, of clinic days and 
in, and days I'm on at labor and delivery solely. Um, I will sometimes also see clinic patients or clinic people that day as well. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, so generally, like, I'm not there five days a week because some days are much longer hours. So we do a 16-hour day and then an eight-hour clinic day, and it adds up to 40 hours. So why this works for me is that I'm not on call. I, um, when I'm done with my work day, I'm done with my work day and I can be more focused mm -hmm. and, and present in my family and not have to have that phone on me all the time. Um, and I just try to, you know, there's no charting at home. There's no, none of that. So that's why that works for me. Yes. That works How for nice. me. And <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm at. Yes. <laughs> so I love it. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. I want to okay. transition uh, just a little bit. So you do a lot of things. Yes. You're a mother of six, right? Mm -hmm. And you're working, you're teaching. Mm -hmm. um, you also have a podcast, the Journey to Midwifery podcast, which if you haven't listened, anyone listening, you. you haven't listened to that podcast, go check it out. There's a lot of really uh, diverse stories of the path to midwifery. Um, so I think people will enjoy that. You're really good at digging into the details of the careers of the midwives you have on, which I think provides some perspective that's not out there. One thing uh, Katie and I noticed, uh, Katie Klein helps me produce the podcast, is that there's just not a lot of content out there created by midwives or student midwives. And this is just yeah. a really needed space. Um, you also blog. And I wanted to talk about the one of the blog articles you wrote. You wrote a really dynamic blog mm -hmm. article about bullying and midwifery. Yeah. So can I share a quote from that? Okay, I'm going to share the quote, and then I'm going to share a bit of my perspective okay. on it. And then I want to just begin talking about that. So the quote says, do you think midwives are nice to midwives behind closed doors? I love my sister midwives today, but I've been in the place where the answer to this is no. This is not just me saying this as a CNM. This comes from midwives at every education level. We can be mean. We can eat our young. But why? My job as a more experienced midwife is to guide and midwife you into the field. And when I read this, I thought, so true. That phrase, eat your young, is one I've heard here at my training institution, like mm -hmm. the students say about preceptors, it also um, points to this paternalistic versus mentoring role that I see many preceptors, mm -hmm. preceptor midwives play towards their students. Midwifery students are junior in their midwifery knowledge, but these are not actually junior exactly. people. These are mature, experienced people. And usually in another field of life, they have children. Like, I mean, I have two children right now and a husband. I've been married for 12 years. You had multiple children throughout mm -hmm. your, your training. You're not a junior person. You were serving in the military. And so I would just love to hear your perspective just again on why you wrote this uh, and what you were thinking exactly, when you wrote this. You just hit the nail on the head. Um, it, I would say overall, my personal experience was, um, pretty good. I had just one rotation where, um, I experienced, I guess, you know, I hate to downplay it and be like, well, it wasn't that bad, but it existed. Um, you know, like maybe my preceptor came to work in a bad mood and I was there and it, I felt like this burden because she was already in a bad mood. And then I'm there as this, you know, annoying person or whatever. Um, and again, like you said, I, was an adult. I've done all this time in the military. I was a mother. I was a, an experienced L and nurse. Like I'm not, but even if you weren't, it's still, you're still a human. And to just 
you know, we're mm-hmm. the ultimate essence of being a midwife is to keep people human and care for them and listen to them. And, you know, the term midwifing and, and not treat people the way that sometimes we treat each other. And it, it just baffles me. Like how, if you're going to treat me this way, how are you treating patients? And sadly, sometimes I would see that as well, which if there's any students out there, take from those experience and learn how not to be. Um, and that's what I did. So I can't remember what inspired me to write that blog mm-hmm. at the time. Cause I, I don't, I was just working, but maybe I was just reflecting. Um, and you know, this is across healthcare as well. Like I haven't precepted a nurse nurse or a new nurse for a long, long time, but I, I know that I had positive feedback from the nurses that I precepted and said, shot me so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, because, and just like us taking care of our clients or patients or whatever you want to call them, just remembering that they're human and that people are, are living outside of this moment. And it's not just about, you know, you and them at that time. And who are you to treat them so poorly? Like, I get that maybe they're not at the level that you mm-hmm. are because duh, but <laughs> Um, They're students. <laughs> then show them and guide them. And I understand too that sometimes it's frustrating and it's exhausting teaching a student. It is because you get in that in your daily mindset and you go along and you do your day and you can do it. You know, pretty your gears are are well oiled, and you got to slow down and you got to pause and you got to learn and or you got to teach and you have to. But I would say too, in teaching, you often learn. You know stuff that's up to date or maybe you learn something about yourself so take the time to do that and not like why are you doing this to people what is the point of that and I mean I hope today and maybe there's people out there that can say that maybe it doesn't exist as much as it has in the past as we become a younger workforce I don't know um but I guess Mm -hmm. that's really I went off on a tangent that's really what kind of (laughs) No, that was great. I think, I mean, I'm very hopeful that it will begin to change, but I was struck by this blog because I've experienced some of the elements that you talked about. And even though I think my institution has well documented that this is a concern in midwifery education, I don't know if every student realizes when they're being mistreated or in an abusive relationship with a preceptor. And so I wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, but I also first wanted to talk about some of the financial and the career implications of um, bullying or mistreatment for student midwives. So I'm going to read another quote and then we're going to go into that. So you have a quote that says, I've been in that place where you feel vulnerable because you are working under someone's tutoring and you must tolerate them to get your end goal. You want to be a midwife. You want to help people. Walk them in understanding and compassion, but to get there, you must endure these weeks and months with someone treating you poorly. Maybe they belittle your lack of knowledge when you ask a question or do not know an answer. Maybe they unintentionally or intentionally make you feel stupid. Maybe they are just grumpy towards you or make you feel like you are a massive inconvenience to them. And I think that definitely uh, puts a little bit more into perspective, like what that what it means to be in this abusive relationship, because Mm -hmm. you can have a really thick skin as a person. Um, I felt like, I mean, serving in the military, being around men all Mm -hmm. the time, they don't care about, they don't generally care about your feelings. So I was not a thin skinned person, but I felt like in this role as a student, like you said, 
you almost have to tolerate them and allow them to be who they are, even if it is abusive or rude or not giving you the things that you need, because they're yeah. the, the ticket between yeah. you and graduating and you and the thing that you need. And that leads into the financial and the career implications. So um, if you're, this may be different for like someone in the CPM route versus nurse midwifery route. Because when I think about nurse midwifery, I wonder if there's a bit more oversight when you're in an established like hospital system, but you could probably speak more to that. So um, what do you think, do you think that in nurse midwifery, there are financial and career implications for a student who's maybe not getting the things that they need with their preceptor or or having to um, juggle this difficult dynamic well, relationship I with their preceptor think of specific financial impacts but career-wise I would say that okay. you maybe didn't get out what you needed because you were afraid to ask questions you were afraid to uh, let's say your mm-hmm. preceptor was doing something that maybe you knew wasn't evidence-based or you felt like was um fear-mongering or patriarchal to the patient or client and you don't question them and so you don't really get to learn um, what informed consent and patient-centered care is. Because if they're treating you that way, like I said, are they also treating mm-hmm. their patients and clients that way? Um, and if not, then I'm like, are they? Mm-hmm. It, that's, that also is strange. Like you treat your patient and client one way and then you treat your student another way behind closed doors. You know, that kind of person is. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> No. So I, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Healthy. I was so I can, say, yes, I can. No, no, go ahead. You, Amber. I don't think you could get, you would get your full knowledge if you had to spend your time with that abusive, in that abusive relationship at whatever level, zero to 10. I don't know. Abuse is abuse. Um, you would miss a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I feel like I have, I've had a personal experience where I worked with two midwives and one I felt was really just, excellent, very, really up-to-date clinical knowledge, um, very willing to teach. And the other, just kind of the opposite. And I would tell myself, well, just value the time that you're spending with this one midwife. But like you're saying, you still are being in this kind of toxic dynamic at times with the other, with that one preceptor. And it's like, what do you do? Like, how do you spend a year with them or, you know, three months or however long your rotation is, um, in the presence of someone who's constantly either doing things that are unethical or not evidence-based or, or, you know, rude or abusive to you, like that plays a toll on you um, in, in multiple ways. The other thing I was thinking maybe about how this financially impacts someone is you mentioned, I think in your post that a preceptor who promised you two semesters of placement and then they were take, they were, then they decided that they were going to take a break after just the first one only to offer that spot to someone else. So in our pathway, CPM, something similar could happen where you're planning to be with a preceptor for a year and then either they close their practice or they decide that we don't get along anymore and we don't want to have you there. And you have to then pay for extra quarters or you've already paid for that whole quarter and now you're paying for an extra quarter. So yeah. I was thinking that might financially impact someone uh, and you maybe you can't afford to pay for an extra quarter or two right. or and however long it takes you to find another preceptor. To another site because the one you were at, like you said, closed or wasn't working out or mm-hmm. whatever. Some people travel across the country and they have to find places to stay and do something with their family. And yeah, that is huge financial implication. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
like thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. I, I know um, multiple people in my cohort who have moved from another state to do the program, though it's a lot of distance learning. It's a hybrid program. So they can kind of guarantee you a placement locally. So if you are in, on the East Coast or, you know, from the South or from, you know, California or something to guarantee a placement, you'd have to move to this state. And then what if your preceptor does decide to close your practice or they say, you know, we don't get along or one of the midwives doesn't care for you, though I care for you. And so because this midwife works for me and helps make me money and you just kind of are a burden to me you have to yeah, now go. What do you do when you've moved your whole family to this place? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things I was thinking is that in career implications wise is if you work in a community and you have a bad experience with a midwife as a student, have you seen like that student be labeled as maybe a problem for speaking up or, you know, have trouble finding a second placement? Have I you heard of anything like that? Seen where maybe let's say you did a rotation as a student with a midwife and they didn't feel, they felt like you were okay, but not super great. Um, They can have a say in jobs you're applying for locally. Um, And it might be because you, I mean, I get Mm -hmm. texts all the time. Do you know so-and-so? It's just small. It's a small, uh, you know, Mm. midwifery world. So yeah, that you know, if you didn't have a great experience locally, that might force you to take a job somewhere else where you don't know people. And that's awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's awful if you wanted to stay. It's not awful if you want to move, but Uh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) It's awful. if Yeah. yeah, If you, you know, maybe that's where your family is from. And there's not that many midwifery jobs and you thought you were going to have one experience and it turned out to be different. And now you're trying to find another place to resettle your whole family. Is that possible? Or maybe now you're considering I have to start my own practice or something to be able to do what I want to do. And then also for CPMs, if you're working or even a nurse midwife, if you're working out of the hospital, you have to have at least a backup midwife in case you get sick or you want to take a break. And so if you if you don't have any strong relationships after you graduate, how do you navigate that? How do you yeah. find that? And or that was even possible for you to practice. Um, you know, what type of, of, are you looking to do a birth center? Are you looking to do home birth? Um, I think networking is, imp- is like crucial mm-hmm. because like you said, you're going to need, uh, there's another great, wonderful person on Instagram as well. Um, her site is called at believe in midwifery and she talks a lot about sustainable practice in mm-hmm. like, you cannot be just one. You, you cannot, we have to relay that to our clients. Mm-hmm. We are healthier and better off when we, she actually says the, the happy number is three. Um, so yeah, you <laughs> have to network. So what does that mean for you? Does it mean you're out of work for a while? Does it mean you don't get to be a midwife? I think people end up a lot of ways where they maybe didn't think they were going to be. I mean, I was out of work for nine months and I was to the point where I, I even said, Mm -hmm. I guess if I don't get to be practicing what I wanted to do, that's what I, that's what I'm going to do. Cause I, my mental health is, I need to prioritize that. Mm Yes, absolutely. Another example I was thinking, so I want to help someone who's maybe currently a student to get a better idea of whether or not what they're in, the experience they're having is a healthy preceptor student relationship. And so another thing I was thinking is 
the administrative work that comes with being a midwife. So obviously there's charting and there's processing labs and there is, you know, mm-hmm. sending out labs, that kind of thing. There's like what we would call admin or I guess scheduling appointments or making sure people, mm-hmm. if you're working in a small practice, making sure people have paid their bill. How much of that have you seen impact the students and whether or not like those things are used as like uh, not collateral, but they use it to mm-hmm. decide whether or not the student will be offered certain skills when they should be being offered those skills at that not. point in their training. Um, have you seen that at all? Experiences as a student were all in the hospital as well. So there was not really anything outside of charting and lab review. Um, you know, we didn't have to do any of that. Okay. And I don't, I don't have any like personal stories where I've met people mm-hmm. that have been impacted by that either. So. Okay. I think that it's um, maybe particular to the, to those who are precepting with mm-hmm. students or students precepting with midwives yeah. who own their own practice and have to do all of those things in house. I have seen some of that where a student um, maybe is a year into their training, but has not done a lot of integration mm-hmm. at, into labor management or assessing labors, but are required to do the majority of those things like the charting and the admin, the um, lab work and things like that. And they're not even being offered those other skills, but they don't know that maybe I should have been at that point already in my training where I'm being offered these things or where the student is being told you must complete all of these things before I offer you these things, these other options or clinical hands-on things. Yeah. That makes sense. Almost as if those are a gift. Yeah. And we had (laughs) not requirements to graduate. Well, um, and she was like somebody, I mean, just right in with the team, she did, she didn't have to do, you know, we had an office manager that did appointments and things like that. So that would not be within her role, but she did charting and labor management. And, you know, you wouldn't even know she didn't work there if if you didn't know better. So I feel like that was a pretty um, Mm -hmm. healthy learning opportunity for her. I'm I'm not her, so I can't speak for her, but you know, I don't think she was. Yes. Uh, used in the wrong way. Um, the only thing I would say with students, and this is probably across mm-hmm. the board, is that um, remembering to be respectful of students' time and not expecting them to be at every single birth. and uh, Because, yes, they need to learn, but, my gosh, they're human, too. And they might have a significant other or children, or they might have mm-hmm. a PRN job they have to go to or whatever. So if they tell you, like, I can't do your 24-hour shifts, I can do 12. Well, then that's, that's their need and meet them where they are and leave them alone about it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Have you heard um, maybe the anal- the example, well, this is a learn a great learning opportunity. Have you ever seen that be used as a way of taking extra from the, cl- from the student or taking more from their time. Cause that's something I've heard is like, well, this would be a great learning opportunity. And even though, like you said, they might have a family they need to get to, or maybe a PRN job or something, you know, maybe they're not feeling so well, but then the preceptors say, well, this yeah. would be a great learning uh, opportunity. And I have not feels as though they can't say no, not seen it, but I absolutely have heard about it and can definitely see that happening. Um, and that's manipulation. And it might be a good opportunity. Maybe they're, mm-hmm. you like to hope that their heart's yeah. in the right place by saying, well, you know, I'm going to do this thing. It's great. Large. But if the student who wants this job says that they cannot be here at this time, then obviously there's a darn important reason. 
you know, and we just need to be respectful of that. And that mm-hmm. was something positive about my yes. experience. Again, at the time I had four kids and I would say like, I need to be home by 10. And even the, the one particular experience that wasn't mm-hmm. the greatest, she was very like, okay, you know, I understand that's, that's your personal situation. And it's not her responsibility to account for my hours. It's mine. So if I need to be home by 10 and I can still make up my hours, then mm-hmm. that's, that's my problem, not hers. So, yes, I, that's one of the benefits I think of being an adult learner is that you can, you can say, you know, I really want to be here and I really am wanting to graduate and be on this path, but I also have to prioritize other things. And I think that in a healthy relationship, because the preceptor is dealing with an adult learner, hopefully they can see this isn't person, this isn't someone who's just trying to, you know, jerk me around and, you know, escape work they're actually having to do right. what adults do which is prioritize exactly. their life with their education okay yeah I'd like to ask now what do you think a healthy student preceptor relation relationship looks like you maybe you don't have to outline everything but what are some things that someone could maybe see and think I okay think this in is general, probably healthy many of the things we said being respectful um understanding that the student is a human um the student also reciprocating that the preceptor is a human and, um, you know, it can be, it slows you down and it is, it can be mentally exhausting to teach a student. That doesn't mean that that preceptor should take those frustrations or emotions out on you. It's not your fault. So, I mean, I think in general, there should be pleasant, mm-hmm. um, it should be a pleasant encounter. You should say, I like my preceptor. I mean, even if they're not your best friend, I still think you should, you should have a good reciprocal relationship with them. That's that you feel okay asking all the questions. And, um, I do think as a student, you should come prepared. Like the preceptor shouldn't answer all your questions. You should come, you know, it's a, meet them halfway. Like I've done this research on my own, but gosh, this is something that's maybe not in the books or we haven't talked about yet. And then your preceptor should say, oh, well, I mean, there's mm-hmm. countless things you probably know as you've been in practice where you say, well, this is just because I've been in practice so long. I've seen this, da, 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 da. Um, and sharing that information. I think that overall, a student should leave an experience feeling good and really just in general, feeling good and feeling like they've learned. If you're leaving and you're feeling yuck and just not good about the day, maybe you should sit down and evaluate what is going on. Is it you? Is it them? Is it your relationship? If there's something so Mm -hmm. negative, can you ask for a different placement? That's not always possible, which is how we end up in these situations. But, um, and just recognizing, but as you said, it can be hard because you're like, well, I need to just tolerate this because this person, I need to graduate. This is my only option. Yes. When you were a preceptor, no, was there a training formal. that you had we, to take um, beforehand? And and this is, well, maybe not always the case as a nurse. Sometimes they have training. But we had to be, at my place, we had to be in practice for a year before you could. So, yeah. But I always feel like okay. you learn when you teach so much. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are things that midwifery schools or midwifery programs can do to curb this type of I don't know. mistreatment I, towards I'm their not students? I'm clever enough to think of something that you could pre-do, but I would say taking 
honest feedback from your students mm-hmm. and avoiding those preceptors or practices in the future if you can. Okay. Yes. There were a couple of things I was thinking um, from a student perspective, because I, I wanted to ask you as a preceptor and someone who's been in education. Um, as a student, I, I know in my own experience, some things that I think were helpful or that additional things that I learned after the fact mm-hmm. that I think might be help for, helpful are documentation. So documenta- documenting the experiences that you're having with your preceptor, dates and times and providing specific examples so that if you do feel at a point where you can't tolerate it anymore or you really need your program to advocate for you, you can provide them with concrete examples of what happened. And I think really, even if you are in a healthy site, it doesn't hurt if you feel as though you could end up in a situation where you need to advocate for yourself, especially if you've made like a major family move and now you're, you're really vulnerable at the site that you're at. Um, I think emailing and ceasing your emailing your preceptor with your concerns and then ceasing your clinical director could be helpful that way there's more than one you know more sets of eyes on the situation of course it's always important to first go to your preceptor and say the things that Mm -hmm. you you know you're noticing and hopefully work it out with them Uh, I think for CPMs or if you're having a concern that you feel like is not being addressed even by your your clinical director going to something like NARM, which is um, Mm -hmm. kind of the overseeing body for certification of midwives or something like that. For CNMs, it might be the Department of Health or the Department of Midwifery for your state. Certification board. ACNM. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And filing a complaint or a concern. And then always following up. I think follow-up is the most important thing. Programs are very busy. Clinical directors are very busy. Midwives are very busy. And so always following up on any communication that you've had. And even if it's just to say things are going great now, and I'm glad that we were able to address yeah. that issue and, That's, you know, we're off to a better, better start now. Those are just, a... thanks. Okay. So I want to wrap up and just see if there's anything else you wanted to share, Amber, before we, oh, we finish the call, but <laughs> uh, you were uh, no, amazing so far. So anything you want to share, but. Um, it's been fun being on the, I guess, the other oh, end okay. of the interview, because as you said, I have a podcast and I haven't been, you're my first. I'm the first interviewee. Is that right? Yeah. So it's been <laughs> fun. Yeah. And I, um, yes, this is your first time being interviewed. There, there's, I tend to try to take positive thoughts out of any situation, which I think sometimes causes me to downplay maybe the seriousness of it. Um, so that's not probably always good either, but, um, it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the only way I can survive really sometimes and probably for a lot of us. Um, but overall I've learned something from all my experiences, mm-hmm. even if it's, that's not how I'm going to be. I'm not going to treat other people like that. I'm not going to treat patients like that. If I am becoming a burnt out haggard midwife, it's time for me to go. Um, it's not each person. Mm-hmm is individual. And just because I'm, t- I've seen, you know, 27 complaints of round ligament today, that 27th person doesn't know that. And it's not my place to feel like, Oh my God, this is this twice. Mm-hmm. I've been asked about round ligament pain, you know, and that's the same with students. Just a, even if you're on your 10th rotation, mm-hmm. you're teaching the 10th, same thing. That 10th student doesn't know that they need you to be present in each encounter. So Yes. That's what I try to do. I'm human, so I'm sure that I'm not perfect, but I, that's what I try to do. That's good. 
Yeah. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you're welcome. I'm so glad that you're able to be on. I have one fun question to ask you. What are you Um, reading right now? Because I like never have time to read, but right now we have time to read. Um, Oh, I got Mother George, the midwife. (laughs) Let me pull up the title. It's on my Kindle. Uh, The mid. Ah, it's not letting me. Mother George. Look up that. Mother George, the midwife. Um, It is about a midwife who they found out it was a big or she was this very large uh, black woman, like wore men's shoes, things like that. She delivered babies in Idaho, which sparked my Mm -hmm. interest in, oh, gosh, late 1700s, 1800s. I haven't gotten that far in the book yet, but um, turns out she was a man when she died. So she was like the first documented, I guess what you would say, like trans wow. uh, midwife, a black midwife in Idaho, which if you've been to Idaho, <laughs> it's very out westy. That's mm-hmm. all I'm going to say. Um, so it's such an interesting story. So this story is actually uh-huh. a um, combination of uh, fiction based on the minimal because, you know, there's not going to be much documentation on, on a person like that back then. Um but it is interesting how the author has weaved this intricate story mm-hmm. into this woman's life. And I just think, what a cool person. So, yeah, that's what I'm reading. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, cool. Wow. Okay. We'll put that in the show oh, notes, so too. Oh, so I am mostly on Instagram. Where can people um, find you online? At The Mothering Midwife. And I have Facebook, too, but it's not as active. Um, but my big thing, obviously, we talked about a lot, is the podcast, which is called journey to midwifery. Um, you can look that up on any, uh, podcast platform. I do have a website, um, journey to midwifery.org. And I occasionally blog. I've not been great about it. Um, and there's a link to the podcast through there as well. And I have an email journey to midwifery podcast at gmail.com. So I'd love to have, if there's any, um, midwives out there that would like to be on my podcast. I'd love to have you. Um, but I, and I love that, you know, you are also doing podcasts from the midwife platform, because as you said, there's really not much, that's what made me start. I was like, there's really nothing out there. So we need something for us. Mine is a specific, a little more specifically focused on no. kind of what we talked about today, just some of the journey, um, of each midwife. And then I have a few, like I've had a pelvic floor therapist on, mm-hmm. um, a few different specialties that anybody in uh, women's healthcare, midwifery, things like that could benefit from. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you, Amber. I hope you and yes. your family stay thank safe you, you and healthy during this COVID me pandemic. Too. All right. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the American Midwife Series podcast with me, your host, Angelica Malone, and our guest, Dr. Midwife Amber Wilson. I really appreciate how Amber broke down how she pursued her education while also serving in the military. It's a unique experience and opportunity that I haven't heard much about, but can imagine that there are those out there considering it without much perspective from someone who's been through it. I hope that by hearing Amber's story, you will feel supported and pursuing a career in midwifery while also serving in the military. I also really appreciate how Amber was able to shed light on a really difficult topic like bullying and midwifery. 
Though it can be difficult to navigate at the time, I have learned through my own journey as a midwifery student, abuse should and will not be tolerated. It's just no longer acceptable. If you are currently experiencing a difficult student preceptor relationship and feel that you have nowhere to turn, I hope that some of the things I've shared in this episode and Amber mentioned will help you. You can also reach out to me and I can try to offer some advice. All right. There will be a special blog post on my website with details from this episode, as well as information in the show notes. You'll find link to Am- links to Amber's website, podcast, and social media account. Uh, if you have questions or comments that you'd like to share with me, please leave me a voice message, which you can find in the show notes or in the blog post for this episode. I also asked Amber before we got started just how she's dealing with COVID and how it's impacting her and her work. And what she said is that they're following the guidelines. They're not really seeing um, any patients for routine care, such as annual exams right now, and many of the OB and postpartum appointments are virtual, again, per guidelines of ACOG. The most intimidating part is caring for our presumably healthy patients, pregnant patients, she says, but not knowing who will turn up positive in a few days. She says, my family has been strict about staying staying home, but I'm most worried about not the if I bring COVID home, but when. All right. You can find Amber, Amber at journeytomidwifery.org and connect with her on Instagram at the mother and midwife or email her at journeytomidwiferypodcast at gmail.com. You can listen to her podcast, Journey to Midwifery, wherever you get your podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at Angelica Malone or on my website at angelicamalone.com. That's A-N-J-E-L-I-C-A-M-A-L-O-N-E.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the American Midwife series, please send me an email to hello at angelicamalone.com with details about who you are, where you're located, and a topic you'd like to discuss. We're especially interested in hearing from seasoned midwives with 10 plus years of experience and black midwives, but all are welcome. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave a message. Bye. Until next time.